night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is motivational speaker and author and mortgage expert, Mark Demetrio. Um, We'll be discussing his new book today, Lessons from My Grandfather, Wisdom for Success in Business and Life. An Ellis Island immigrant, Mark Demetrio's grandfather came to a new country at age 16 with nothing but a bag full of dreams, courage, wit, and the desire to succeed. Through his steadfast willingness to work hard and a determination to control life rather than allowing it to control him, Demetrio's grandfather succeeded on his own terms, finding happiness and financial security. Demetrio shares 15 timeless success and fulfillment principles handed down from his grandfather. Demetrio is featured in the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and the Associated Press. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Mark. Thank you, Catherine. My pleasure. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Well, it's, it's an exciting book, and uh, it's an inspirational book. You've said it's instri- instri- uh, inspirational, as many other people have. So I guess the first question is, how is it going to inspire us? What, what are the, we have the, the, the principles of success that uh, 15 timeless, and maybe timeless is actually the key word, uh, principles of success and fulfillment, because your grandfather came here when, and that during the, after the depression? 19, 1929, three weeks after the stock market crash. Okay. So, and you're saying these principles still apply to us today. Absolutely. You know, the, the principles uh, that are in there, the 15 of them, um, just to back up even one second before that, the, the inspirational part of this, even more than just the principles, because the principles are just a common way of living your life to be successful, enjoy life, and all that good stuff, and I'll mention a couple great ones. But the, the biggest inspirational part of this book is just the story of my grandfather, leaving home at 16 years old with nothing but the shirt on his back to have an opportunity to, be, to get ahead in life and make money and, and be something in life, so left his family and everything he knew behind, got on a ship and, and left, and basically came here in 1920 and started out shining shoes and you know so on and so forth. But the inspiration is that individual at that age to say, I want to be something in life, and I want to take a chance and go out and, and make that happen, and never stopped and never gave up and keep moving forward and weren't around obstacles. And of course, there's tragedies and upsets and things that happen, but he never stopped moving forward. And from the time he started shining shoes at 20 to retire 60 a millionaire, the story of his life between that is really what got him ahead in life, what made him successful who he was. And, and as a mentor to me and a guiding light and a best friend and grandfather, um, my purpose of sharing this book, sharing this mentor with the world, saying, I want to give this world the mentor that I had, that I was advantaged to have this individual. And I want to give this to so many people that you know, need, need direction, need inspiration, need motivation, need, need hope, need to understand no matter where you come from in life, what your start is, you can make your own path in life. Um, so it was really just an empowerment book to give to people to say, here you go. This is a real life story. And I put a lot of motivational stuff in there and the success stuff, and it's a wonderful transition into that. Um, but it's really just the whole book itself is really, uh, I'm blessed that the way it came out. Well, let's talk about that. And go, I want to take us back because Charlie, your grandfather, was 16 when he came here. And you just mentioned him, all the trials and tribulations and all the stuff that happened to him. What, how did he overcome that at age 16, at 16 well, yeah, years so, old? So, coming, yeah, so, six, yeah. so even 16, 16 years old, left Cyprus in the middle of the night without even telling his parents because he knew he wouldn't have the resolve to leave if he had to look his parents in the eye. So he basically left and worked out with a merchant ship to take him to Greece. And he said, I'll feed your animals for two weeks, 
take me because I have no money. His father found out he was leaving, rode out to the boat and said, son, I, I, you have my blessing. I know why you're doing this and my heart's with you and make, make, you know, make it happen. And he gave him a few coins he had in his little vest uh, pocket there. In the old days, he had the little, tri- you know, little vest. And they went on his way and uh, went to Greece and London, saved enough money and came here at 20 years old. And just basically, you know, starting out from nothing and, you know, lived in an apartment with six other gentlemen in a room, uh, slept on the bed one night a week, and just that, that hardship of just food lines and working hard. But the, the commonality of his thread of life was all these things he taught me, you know, Every job he had, he loved the opportunity to have labor and to be making money. So whether it was shining shoes or the busboy job or the waiter job, he did it with everything he had because he knew every job was a stepping stone to the next. And he always told me, if you do everything you can do possibly, the best you can do it, people will see that. Have a positive attitude. Enjoy life. Help others around you. Be aware of the suffering of others. Know that wherever you are in your life, someone's always worse off. Always give, give where you can. So there's all this wonderful stuff as a human being and just learned just really from a young age without education and absorb the people around him, the knowledge and where he can learn from people and just grow with people. So there's a lot to be said about that. You know? So the obstacle of just getting through that, obviously, and which is working through life, the depression was the worst depression ever, and he still managed to make it through all that. He was in World War II in the Normandy Beach invasion on one of the vessels that came into the, uh, the beach. Uh, he made it through that. He was 43 years old, one of the oldest draftees you know, at the time. So just, and then you'd see pictures of him on the ship smiling. I mean, it was a tragic time, but he made the best of every opportunity in life. He loved life, and, and that magnetizing force around him, people were attracted to him, and they wanted to help him. He was a five-foot-two little peanut, and he just enjoyed life. You know? So there's a lot to be said about small pieces. I'm just touching on a couple things right now. But, Mark, how do we, I'm listening to you talking about him, and he sounds like such a special, really special man. Like he has some kind of inner resources or inner emotional resources. Maybe do we, and I listen to you and I think, well, how can we accomplish those kinds of things? Or can we? Or is he just a special person? No, you can, and that's the best part about it. Is my book explains a lot of this. My, you know, you, yeah. we have 24 hours in a day. We all have that. So deciding on what you do in that 24 hours is up to each and every one of us. One of my taglines in the book and for life is success is a choice. Every day in your life, you make choices, little choices to big choices of everything that goes on in your life. You know, we're on this earth as much as we know at one time. You know, and it's all about you know what you do in life echoes in eternity. It's a big statement of mine. I, I, I say as well. So how you live your life every day, who you interact with, how you handle things, your attitude. One of my one of the lessons is attitude is everything. Attitude is everything. How you handle everything in life, from family, friends, social, business, clients, life in general. You know, you have opportunities, and it's really really about taking chances and making things happen. You know, life is hard. You know, there's a lot of obstacles, a lot of upsets, a lot of tragedies, a lot of walls to get through and mountains to climb over. It's just that's life. But if you understand that life's going to be hard per se, and when it's fun, it's fun and easy. It's easy. But you know, you have to understand that you you know you have to make things happen for yourself. And that's the big thing he always taught me, too. He says, Mark, you have to go out there and make things happen for yourself. You're not going to get handed things. It's not going to be easy in life. You've got to make things happen. If you set a goal for yourself and you want to accomplish something, you just never stop till you hit that. You want to do it as much as you want to breathe. You keep moving forward. And that was his thing. He kept moving forward no matter what happened and what obstacles came his way. And people have to understand that. You know, we're on this earth to just make the best of life, but people have all different levels of where they want. Money isn't success, money isn't happiness. You don't have to make a million dollars a year and spend a million dollars a year to think you're successful. You can have success at all different levels. Some people just want to have a nice house with a nice family and a couple of cars and a couple of dogs. That's okay. That's successful too. So money doesn't translate into success and happiness. Um, so that's also, there's just so many mantras in here. But really the way he lived his life, and he was very fortunate to understand a lot of this and be self-schooled.
in a way. Yeah, well, I think one of the things uh, you just mentioned, obviously, the first one, which I think is the most important as well, attitude is everything. But And along with that, is, is and I think that kind of what also comes out of what you just said is expectations, expectations. Um, your grandfather didn't expect to have people hand things to him or that everything was going to go right or that he wasn't going to have to work hard. I, I think, and maybe we can talk about that in the context of today, because I think maybe that, that that's something that holds a lot of us back. We have these sort of unrealistic up expectations, and when things don't go our way, we give up. Uh, we, yeah, we don't want to take risks. You talk about taking risks in the book, and we're not that resilient, uh, or maybe don't have the same kind of resilience because of our expectations. Well, let me make this very simple, too, in a way, so that's, that's well said. I like to talk about things in general when I speak in front of people. If people have a roof over their head and a meal on the table, that's a great start to the day. Think about how powerful that is. Just a great start to the day. Think about someone like my grandfather didn't even know his next meal or next dollar coming in and where he was living at the time just you know, with those guys. But you think about the resilience of, of where you are in life right, and what obstacles Again, we're talking about obstacles or risks you have to take to get where you want to be. Life is not easy, and people have to understand that you have to utilize your resources that are around you. You know, no matter, again, you look at people like Oprah that came from nothing and where she, where she went to and where, where she, what she accomplished in life. You know, there's opportunities in every, every, in every angle of this earth. There's opportunities. Each person, and I believe this, each person has a gift. They don't know what their gift is at times. They may never figure it out, unfortunately. But each person is gifted with something. It could be a musician. It could be art. It could be law. It could be a doctor. It could be something, something, a priest. Whatever it is in life, you're gifted with something. It's a matter of finding that gift, but finding the passion. And that word passion and purpose, which is one of my chapters, passion and purpose, is very powerful. If you look at everybody and say, what is your passion? What do you really love to do? What, what drives you? What, what gets you wakes up in the morning? What do you want to do with your life? If you, you know, whatever you find that person to say, that's their passion. That's their calling. And people don't realize that. Everyone's got a calling. Everyone on this earth is, is used for some purpose. Um, and, you know, talk about the next chapter, action and attitude. So once you find your purpose and passion, then it's about action and attitude. Get out there and, and make it happen with the great attitude and then the action plan. So these are all, this isn't simple stuff. It's success made simple in a way, but there's a lot of hard work to get where you need to be. And my grandfather, believe me, I tell you, he said to me, if you take 100 people in the same job, 100 people, same job, who's going to come in early, stay late, and work through lunch and be a positive person, get the job done, they're going to excel. It's very simple. And those one percenters that do that will the ones that are going to excel and get to be noticed and get to the next job. And you look at life that way and tackle life as an excellent individual, be the best you can be in everything you do, and take criticism in, listen to everything. One of the things was listen to everything. Don't, don't think you know everyone. Don't think you know everything. Listen to everyone. You can learn from a bird. He meant that seriously. You know, never think yeah, you're well, you above say, anybody. I think one of the things that you mentioned in these lessons is that don't, you know, no one ever does it alone. Don't forget that. Yes. You're not in yes. it alone. You have to, yeah, and that's, that's really important. Where do you think people get stuck? Like, where, let's say you, because you're very successful. Obviously, you learned. These are the lessons you learned from your grandfather, and you learned them well. But there must have been places along the way, because I like to kind of personalize this. Like, where did you get stuck, and how did you overcome it? I mean, you know, how did you find your passion, for instance, or when you're trying, or your purpose? And was there a time ever where you felt like, hmm, I just, you know, I'm just not there yet? I, I you know, and, and really had, you know, and was really stuck. Well, I wouldn't say I ever really got stuck. I mean, there's, there's definitely things that, you know, in my life and, you know, just 
different obstacles or different situations that you had to put a little extra time and effort in or figure things out in a way. I'm just, I'm kind of blessed that I haven't really had, got, got stuck per se anywhere. So I just kept forging forward and, and using my skills and talents and relationships to make things happen. But I will tell you the one thing, just a global theme is that, and I don't always do a disappointment in general, but there's just, you really have to make things happen for yourself, unfortunately, because, you know, really, everyone's busy with their own lives. Everyone's got things going on. You know, if you ask for help or you talk to people or, you know, you, you seek the group or, or, or context you need, that's one thing. But, you know, you really, if you want to make things happen in life, you really got to go out and do it. That's all I can say. You got to put your effort and your time in and make things happen. You know, I work a lot. I play a lot. I enjoy life. I enjoy life to the fullest. Every minute of my life, I, I get the best of life. I value every minute. It's a million dollars a minute. I value my time very preciously. And I try to impact as many people around me as I can in life. And and be a good person and do the right thing. And so I think all the things in general my grandfather taught me and I learned from life, um, he retired when I was born. So I had him for 37 years of my life as a, just a mentor and best friend. It was a blessing. You know? So I think just all these commonalities of just forging forward and staying focused, um, I'm very focused on things. So I think that's the only lesson to, to come out of this little quick little statement you asked me is just, you know, you need to lay out the plan and just attack it. Don't stop. You know, and that's what it could be. You can, you got to know that you really, it's hard to count on a lot of people per se, other than yourself. And, and, you know, utilizing your sphere, like I said, but, you know, you want to be able to give back at times too. So it's a, it's a you know, it's just two-way street. Yeah, I think one of the things, you know, relying on other people, but at the same time, you're the one who has to do it. You're the one who makes those choices and the consequences exactly. of those choices, exactly. right? Exactly. What happens when people disappoint you? Because people do disappoint you. I mean, sometimes you have to go on or certain people don't follow through with you and you thought those were the people who you were, who were in it with you or for you and they're not. Right. Well, you know, one thing that's very clear in life is there'll be disappointments, setbacks, tragedies, deaths, um, you know, financial upsets, you know, walls that people get put up. That's life. So I think for me and my grandfather, this is a very big point that you, I'm glad you brought this up. I have a blessing, and he had it, to look forward in life, to look for positive. You learn from the past. You don't dwell on the past. You don't dwell on negative. You don't consume your brain with that, with that stuff because your brain's a sponge, and I move forward in life. And I learn from the mistakes. I learn from things that have happened. I learn from disappointments, whatever it may be. So you forge forward and keep moving forward. And that was one of my lessons, too, keep moving forward. And, and, and so... I will tell you that I've trained my body and my brain, my, my brain more so, that so much so that if a negative thought comes in my head, you know, it's crazy because I can be, if I'm laying in bed and I sleep really well at night, which is a blessing, but if, I, if a negative thought happens to pop in my head in the morning about something, and then, another, then it actually is weird because another negative thought will pop in, another negative thought, I actually wipe my brain and say, clear it, clear it out and stay focused. So it's really crazy. Your brain really is a machine. It's a, it's a powerful machine as we know it. So the more you fuel yourself with good stuff and powerful stuff and good people and reading good content and being an expert and being passionate, the brain, you don't know what you can accomplish. It's amazing. It's truly amazing. And I've been like almost a test to myself. I can be a testament to that. So the goal is staying focused and moving forward and, and, and you look for, to the past. People get so bogged down in life. And listen, it could be an athlete that was a college athlete going to the pros, doing his thing, and he gets tragically hurt or breaks a leg or a ligament he's done with football for life. That's tragic because, again, his life would have been changed forever. I know people that's happened to. So how do you get that person to say, you know what, I know you wouldn't have been a multimillionaire, you would have been on you know, fame and glory, but how do you get that person to say, you know, what can I do to learn from this? Well, maybe there's something that comes out of it. Maybe it could be, you know, a motivational speaker, get back out 
out there and treat, teach people, listen, it's not the end of the world. You can make things happen. Go impact the world some other way. So, you know what I'm saying? You've got to learn how to react to tragedy because things, things happen, you know? You gotta be yeah, set, well, I you think the example is of what you're talking about it really uh, exemplifies all, all of the, these principles. If you, I'm, you know, I'm watching the Olympics and you look at some of these young athletes who, you know, which, exactly what you said has happened to them. They've fallen, they've broken their backs, they've, you know, been out of commission, and yet they get back in and they win a bronze or a silver or a gold medal. So right, this right. Is, yeah, so that's an example of what obviously what your grandfather, the lessons you learned from your grandfather. Um, one of the things you say, or one of the, the, the lessons are there are no limits and no ends. What does that mean, there are no limits? I mean, aren't there some limits, certain things you can't do, and maybe you shouldn't even try to attempt them? Um, so let's talk about that one. There are no limits and no ends. What does that mean? Well, because... Because the opportunities in life are endless. When my grandfather pulled up in that boat and he saw the Statue of Liberty and saw the, said to himself, I know I'm here now and the opportunity is going to present itself to me. I will conquer it and go forward and move, and move in a good light. The fact of the matter is, you know, if you want to be the president of the United States or CEO of a company, you know, you can do that. You can be that person, you know, whether it's schooling or education or contacts. I purposely run my life in a way that I say... I could do anything in life I want to do. You focus and get it done. So when you talk about no limits, you know, where do you want to be in life? What do you want to accomplish? What is important to you? Where, where do you want to end up? And just don't stop. So there's no limits to your success once you get to your, where you're going to be. There's no, there's no walls in your way. Just force forward and make it happen. So it's really a common theme, again, is where do you want to be in life? Just keep moving forward and get through things. But I think it's just a you know, commonality for people to realize that you know, basically – opportunities are endless and whatever you want to do in life you can if you put the time and energy into it and that's what it comes down to and listen most people don't want to sacrifice I've put a lot of hours in my life to my craft to my trade to this book the last two, or two years of my life nonstop. every minute I had I mean it's a lot of work you know and I said to myself in the beginning when I started I want to share this mentor with the world I was gifted to have he's been, he's, it's a shame this man's not on this earth anymore he died in 97 which was a blessing you know this is years after he passed away 9-10 years after he passed away so it's, 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 it's a shame that this man is not this earth any longer was such a wonderful man I want to give this mentor to the world you know most people look at my grandfather and say wow what a disadvantaged individual you know was poor in his island of Cyprus had to leave home to make something of himself you know really truly disadvantaged but you know what he was one of the most advantaged people I know in my life because he had the power and the drive and force inside him to get ahead in life and move forward and be something in life and that's powerful beyond measure and that's the difference and I, well, I think one of the other things is, though, we have to kind of take a look at you, too, because I think this is one of the things that you have said. Um, you have to listen. You listened to your grandfather, and you were able to absorb his wisdom. Um, and this is your grandfather, and uh, I think a lot of people today, younger people, are, uh, are not willing to listen to their grandfathers or even their fathers because they, you know, they think that things have just accelerated into a whole different realm, and that there is no wisdom to learn from. So I think that's a really an important important piece of this. I mean, there you, you were able, he, what, at 60 he retired, so you had all those years to listen to him and be with him and let him mentor him, but you had to allow that to happen as well. No question about it. And I, and I knew the wisdom that he had, the knowledge he had, because I looked at his life and said, who, who can leave at 16 years old? And by the way, he never stopped sending money back to his family in Cyprus all the years they were alive, all the years. So I'm not doing the right thing. He never stopped. So talk about the wisdom and the empowerment of this individual to go through what he went through. How can I not stop to listen? So I, I, in a way, you know, I've been working since 11 years old, you know, had the paper out and, you know, have shoveled the snow in the summer, winters and, you know, did the lawns in the summer, all like jazz. So I haven't stopped the hard work ethic from the beginning, but you know, you think about 
um, you know, this individual hardships he went through and how he got ahead in life, and he made it. He made it. This man made it in life. He could have been dead on the street somewhere in New York City in the, in the 30s, I, but he made it. So that was always it was so empowering to me, so empowering. So, so by being the best I could be in life and taking a lot of his lessons and forging forward again, that's the purpose of writing my book, to give these people empowerment to say, you know, to get back to the basics, say, here's an immigrant story that you may not even know about the Ellis Island story, depending on your age, but I'm going to give this to you, this, this immigrant story, with this ability to succeed in life, and here's what it comes down to. But the younger generation, you know, social media has a lot of distracting factors about it, but, you know, I try to write a very encompassing book to give them that empowerment, to let them understand that the opportunities are endless and they can be anything they want to be in life. Um, they just have to just forge forward, make a plan, and put it in place and make it happen. Yeah, believe in yourself always, as you say. That's that's one of I, I think that's also key. One of the lessons that you learned from your grandfather: believe in yourself. Um, what how does this fit into like you know all the controversy over immigrants today, for instance, with with, with what's happening to us politically? I mean, can you fit that into some kind of? A, I mean, here we this is a, a wonderful you know this is a obviously a successful immigrant story. Um, how does that you know and and, and Today, we have all the, you know, we don't want immigrants to, not, not I, but, uh, you know, having, allowing immigrants to come into the country is an issue. Should we or shouldn't we? So uh, can we talk about that in the context of all that your grandfather did and was able to do and accomplish and pass it on to the next generation coming yeah, from listen, an immigrant it, background? Yeah, it's a gift. Listen, when you talk about these immigrants that, that came back then for, for a better opportunity in life, for an opportunity, depending on where they came from, um, you know, going through the system, you know, it's coming in the right way. I mean, there's something to be said about that. I mean, obviously, you know, I believe in immigration as far as, you know, letting people here come here to, to make a better life for themselves. But, you know, there's a, there's a, a line to be drawn about making sure they're legal and come through the right way and basically go through the system. So that's what, that's what needs to be done in a way of getting back to the basics like it was with Ellis Island. I mean, whether Ellis Island was perfect or, you know, the process was perfect, I'm not sure. I can't answer on that. But I think having a process to give people an opportunity to come in the right way, um, there's something to be said about that. But, but I actually, while starting to write this from the first time I put the pen to paper, in my head was, I'm going to give the world an immigrant story that these younger generational people have no idea about. I want to give the world, again, a true positive immigrant story that, that most are forgetting about, uh, as well as, like I said, inspirational, motivational, and success-based as well in there. So I, I did have that in mind, and I, I do believe in that, that whole you know, immigrant. You know, talk about all these people that came in the 20s and 30s and 40s. They came into America to make something themselves, and so many did. They worked so hard. And you know what? There's so much more opportunity now than before. We have the Internet. We have books. We have information. They had nothing back then. They had nothing to read. They had no phones. They had no Internet, no social media, no content. I mean, look, you get your hands on a book. So think about how much we have now in our hands and our grasp. If you want to be the best lawyer in the world, you could do so much research online and talk to You can get hands, hands on the best lawyers and interview them and you know, go research blogs. And I mean, think about how much is available to you. If you want to be the best you could be in something, it's possible. Beyond measure right now, it's possible. So big differences. You think sometimes people get overwhelmed with all of those choices because, like you say, I mean, there's just so much out there. There's so much information. There's so much opportunity um, that you have to learn how to focus as well because there are so many opportunities, and you have to make the – well, it's important to make good choices, but there are lots of good choices, many, many good choices. So sometimes I think people do get overwhelmed by that, uh, which is – say, different than it was 50 years ago. Um, right. I think staying, yeah, staying focused, and again, getting back to being focused, I think staying focused, um, and, and, and in my 
book I have, Time Management, is a very, very big part of life. Very essential. Your time, ability for time management, organizational skills, those are essential to be organized, keep on, keep on track with things that you're doing, and also value your, like I said, value your time is a million dollars a minute. I don't care how much money you make or not. My, you know, if I'm making you know, $100 a year or a million dollars a year, my time's worth a million dollars a minute. How I use my time is so important that I'm using it to the best of my ability. But if you're talking about, there's, there is so much available information out there, but again, it's about being focused and, and honing in on things, but you can be the best you can be at anything right now with the information available right now. There's no reason we all shouldn't be experts. But again, it takes a lot of work and sacrifice, and people aren't willing to put in that time and effort, unfortunately. People get to a point, they just, you know, it's either too hard or there's too much to risk, or I'm just comfortable, I don't want to put a lot of time and effort in. I mean, you know, I can, I can tell you the difference between, you know, people that are rich and people that aren't rich is a lot of different habits, a lot of different habits. In fact, part of my book, I have a couple pages from a, from a book that I, uh, that I read that talks about the habits of wealthy people and, and non-wealthy people, and it's, it's a pretty interesting mix of what makes people, you know, the people that are wealthy, what they're doing versus people that aren't wealthy, what they're doing. Big difference. Big difference. How they achieve their wealth, how they get No, not even that, just, the way they, they're, yeah. they're just what they're doing. You know, the, well, the, yeah. the people that are more successful in life, they're eating healthy, they're working out. The people that aren't healthy, the only successful aren't. People that are, are, that are wealthy, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're reading books, they're, they're learning, they're absorbing their brain. People that aren't, they're watching more TV and like, you know, they're just, I can go on and on. These are just statistical stats. There's a book called Rich Habits. I mean, it's a friend of mine wrote it, and it's a phenomenal book. He studied lots of wealthy and non-wealthy people and just asked about what they were doing with their lives, and it's a phenomenal book. So I incorporate a little bit, a couple pages on that in my book. But it's very interesting of how people conduct their lives. But, you know, people, listen, people can work nine to five and complain they don't have money and want more in life, you know, and... To me, I mean, I'd work three jobs if I had to, if I wanted more in life. You know what I'm saying? That's kind of the way I was brought up. My grandpa said, listen, you put the time and effort in Because I worked, I didn't see my kids at, at sometimes because I was, you know, he was in the hospitality industry and stayed work late at night and stay over in the city at times. But he said, you know, I knew what, what had to be done. But the time I, this is powerful, but the time I spent with my kids and my family was very powerful and quality time. I'd make sure there was no, no, no distractions. I spent the right time with them. So, the, so they never knew I wasn't really there my, their whole lives a lot of times when I was out because I always spent great time with them. So you have to be focused at the minute of what you're doing and, and pay, be, att- be attentive to that. So these are all you know, very valid points. But I think for people in general, um, the focus part of what you're doing is very important. To, to success in anything. So, focus, you know, focus, that focus. We only have a couple minutes left, and we've covered a lot, but we certainly haven't covered all that's in the book. So, I want to make sure that everybody knows where they can buy the book. You can buy it at bookstores everywhere online, website or websites we can go to so we can get more information about you and about the book. And the title of the book is Lessons from My Grandfather Wisdom for Success in Business and Life, Mark Demetrio. So, give us the you know more information um well start with the websites yeah, so the website, you know, so I was, I was blessed on a side note to have Barbara Corcoran, you know, the Shark Tank Barbara Corcoran endorsed do, my book. Yeah. She's on the cover, so very, very grateful for that, and I'm happy to have that uh, be part of my book. But the book itself, you know, so I can uh, give you the website. It's available on Amazon as well, but also through my website. You can go to the website at grandfatherlessons.com. There's a sample chapter there, a lot of information about the book. You can just go in there and grab it, and uh, they can click on Amazon, right to Amazon, or get uh, to the Kindle or I, I, iTunes for the download as well. There's options right on the website. But uh, that's where it is. It's uh, grandfatherlessons.com. Great. It was great having you on the show today. Well, thank you. My, my pleasure, Catherine. Yeah. It's my pleasure yeah. uh, speaking to you, and uh, it's been a very enjoyable 30 minutes. Great. You're very inspirational, Mark, I have to say. Well, <laughs> well thank you. I appreciate that. Um, 
uh, really, my, my, it's a gift that I've been given by my grandfather. I'm very blessed to have this inner drive and, and want to share it with the world. I mean, a blessing for me right now to be able to get out there and uh, speak more and more and impact you know thousands, if not possibly millions, in this world. And it's uh, I'm, I'm I'm grateful to have the opportunity with this book out there. Well, keep on doing what you're doing. Well, thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvin Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Roseanne Lake. She's the Economist Cuba correspondent. She's also the author of Leftover in China, The Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower. American journalist Roseanne Lake, in her book, chronicles the lives of the women she first met working as a television reporter in Beijing. Known as leftovers, if they fail to marry by age 25, these women represent a China in which gender roles have not evolved as vigorously as society itself, and where new professional opportunities have made women less willing to compromise their careers or concede to marriage for the sake of it. Channeling their full economic engagement, is not only a social imperative, it's an economic necessity, says Roseanne Lake. Uh, her coverage has appeared in Foreign Policy, The Atlantic, Salon, and Vice. Welcome to the show, Roseanne. Nice to have you here. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you for having me. So we're going to be talking about leftover in China. Obviously, the first question is, what does that mean? Who are the leftovers in China? Who are the women, obviously? Um, who are the leftover women in China? Where are they? Well, they're actually left. 
<laughs> they're actually leftover men and leftover women in China. Um, the women are the focus of the book, but I certainly discuss the men. Now, the women, the men and the women are left over for two very different reasons. The women are left over because they've passed their culturally imposed sell-by dates of 25 or 27, depending how progressive of a city you've grown up in. So in, in China, there's this, there's this idea that fertility sort of peaks around age 27. So if a woman's not married and, and on her way to having children by then, she's probably not going to have healthy babies and therefore is not desirable on the marriage market and she's called leftover. Now that leftover is obviously a translation from the Chinese. Um, the Chinese is sheng nu, which literally means leftover woman and the prefix sheng is the same as you would hear in shengtai, which is leftover food. So it really is a very unsavory term to refer to a woman over 25 who's not married. Now the other side of that equation are China's leftover men. Um, leftover men are known as guanggun, which translates to bare branches. And this is in reference to the fact that it's assumed that they will never produce any offspring because um, starting in 1979, China had a one-child policy. And given the country's traditional preference for boys, uh, many families performed sex-selective abortions, or there was essentially gendercide. Um, and there's, as a result, there's been a surplus of, of boy, baby boys born every year in China for, for a very long time before the one-child policy, because there's always been a traditional preference. But this made it more acute, because suddenly parents could only have one, and they overwhelmingly chose to have a boy. And so you now have a surplus of 30 million men of marriage age. Um, so 30 million more men uh, than women of marriage age, which means that mathematically there are men in China who will find it impossible to find a wife. And they are known as these bare branches or, or the equivalent of leftover men. And it's critical to note that many of these men were born in China's rural areas where parents were most traditionally minded and most keen to have a son. Um, and they also wanted sons to work on family farms. So these men grew up in, in rural areas. And they've not benefited from China's economic growth in the same way that the surviving girls, um, so girls born into families where parents were open-minded enough to have a daughter and said, oh, we got a girl. Okay, we'll keep her. You know, she's not going to have a brother. We're not going to have a son. She's our sole heir. So we're going to give her every possible opportunity that we have, may have given a, a boy. We'll educate her. So what you're her, saying, I we'll just want to interrupt you for a minute. So what's happened is sure. you have the leftover men and the leftover women, but they are missing matched as well because the women I am assuming come exactly. from the cities or you know Shanghai Beijing and the men are coming from the country and so they're probably educationally mismatched in, in many other ways obviously so you even geographically yes yeah exactly okay so what do you, so all right so here we are we have the, the leftover men and the leftover women and but we're going to be focusing on the leftover women so what does this say in terms of well you, you're talking about in this context of uh, China being the superpower or the emerging superpower um, what is how is this culturally what are we talking about then if we have all of these women who are more well educated uh, concerned about their jobs not necessarily wanting to get married um, at 25 or younger or before 25, what does that mean for the whole society? How does, I mean, obviously that's what you talk about in your book. Um, What about these leftover women? What, What are they doing? Well, it boils down to 
um, an economy and a country that has developed much more quickly than the culture, right? The culture just hasn't had time to recalibrate itself to a new reality. So on the one hand, it means that China can kind of pat itself on the back and say, you know, in a very short amount of time, we've lifted tons of people out of poverty. We've brought them from rural areas to urban areas. We've given women, not necessarily by design, <laughs> more sort of as, a, as an accident, right, and, an aftershock, an unintended consequence of this one-child policy. But, you know, as a result of it, as a result of this very gruesome cloud, there has been this very fine silver lining in the sense that, you know, women have gotten opportunities they've never gotten before. And it means that China is very well poised to, if 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 it plays its cards well, it's very well poised to transition into the type of economy and the type of country that it wants to become, which is essentially no longer the factory of the world, right? That, that's, that's an old story. That's what got China to be what it is, right? Becoming the manufacturing com- country of the world. But those factories, I mean, it, it's no longer sustainable to, to do those things in China. Wages are higher. The cost of raw materials is higher. Factories are migrating to other places, you know, that are a bit further down the food chain, like Vietnam, for example. And so China now wants to transition into more of a superpower, to more of a knowledge-based economy. And for that, it needs a different set of skills, skills that in the women that I discuss in the book are, are equipped with, right, because they had these opportunities and they are educated. And, and marriage is something that they're certainly very keen to, to, to consider, just not on the timeline that, that is imposed. Um, most of them seem to need a little bit more time to figure out what it is they, they'd like out of a partnership and, and also to find the person um, that will correspond to to that idea. So in terms of the men who are available for that, let's say you have professional women and, uh, you know, women in politics and, and you, know, you know, women who are, um, who are out there and, you know, it, we're talking about economic terms, earning money, and who is available for them to, to marry? I mean, marriage is, well, I think I... I think I had watched you on one of the TEDx, you had done a TEDx uh, program. And, you know, marriage is the cornerstone of, uh, of, of, the, of the culture in China. So if it is, how does that play out with these women? Who's there for them when they're 30 or 35 years old? Like here in the United States, for instance, people are getting married later and later. Yes, and that's also true in China, but what we'll probably see is that fewer and fewer people get married at all, right? They're going to get married later and fewer of them are going to get married at all because really the numbers don't work out. I mean, I wish I had a solid answer that, you know, there's a secret hanger, there's a stash of available men for them somewhere in China that just haven't been discovered yet. They've been grooming them um, all of these years, but that's, I mean, that's not true, right? So um, things will have to work themselves out. I mean, there's a lot of these women are, are studying abroad or they're traveling abroad or they're working abroad. So that's a way of, of broadening the dating pool. Uh, what makes it complicated for them, I mean, the, the gender imbalances are not as acute in, in urban areas as they are in rural areas. In rural areas, you have entire villages um, that they call bachelor villages, where there's not really a single woman um, under the age of 50, because you know, these any women born in these areas, of the few that were born there, were able to leave. They, as, as daughters, they didn't have the same obligations to their families, and so they could you know, become a work in a factory or, or work in a restaurant or become a hostess at a KTV parlor and then meet someone a bit higher up on the, on the, you know, the social hierarchy, someone with a bit more money, with a bit more, with more resources, marry up and, and marry into a better life. Men can't do that in China, and that's fundamentally the problem for many of these leftover women, right? They themselves are quite high up on that chain, and, and China is a country that 
has very doggedly stuck to what is known as marriage hypergamy, right? This idea that a woman should marry up to someone older, taller, more educated, with a higher salary, and that a man needs to marry down. And, you know, that's been the case universally in many parts of the world. Things kind of started out that way, but there's definitely been a shift. And a big part of of why that shift has happened has been, you know, women have gotten greater access to education all around the world over the past 30, 40, 50 years. And um, that has meant that numerically it's impossible for every single woman to marry up, right? And so societies have adapted to that. China has has been a bit more persistent in maintaining that model, and that's where it runs into trouble. Because, you know, as as the accomplishments of these women increase, it gets a little bit harder for them to find matches, much less, you know, someone superior to that. And then when you add the extra layer of complexity um, and consider that, you know, these men who are their counterparts can marry their pick up a lot, right? Can, they can marry their equal or they can marry someone, um, you know, much younger, uh, much less accomplished or, you know, whomever they choose. So it gets tricky for them, um, which is why, you know, the, the marriage rates, which in China, as you pointed out until very recently, has been universal because marriage in China is a social imperative. It's, it's how you organize a country that's so big, right? Families for China historically have been the building blocks of a nation and, and the foundation of our harmonious society. And you had these units, which, you know, this is how you organized your people. So the idea of a woman, you know, without a family who's a single household, right, is, is destabilizing. Um, and, and for some people, you know, they consider it dangerous, which is why there's a concern um, about, you know, the rising rates of, of so-called leftover women in, in China. Well, do you think some of these leftover women, I mean, obviously, they, you know, in the positions that they're in, they have access also to men who are wealthier and higher up maybe on the well, economic scale as well as uh, social scale in other countries. Are they marrying, for instance, do they marry, are they marrying more to, um, to, to foreigners, to people who, you know, and, and not staying in China? I mean, is that a piece of it as well? Yeah, that's definitely a part of it. I mean, you know, these women are cosmopolitans, so they can meet men from different places. Um, and many of them, you know, who, who are abroad maybe do end up partnering with, with a foreigner. Um, it does get slightly complicated when they've spent time abroad and they go back to China because um, they realize that sort of the men that they've grown up with, so people in their social circles, people that their parents might try to partner them up with because matchmaking is still a very lively and, and uh, it's, it's still a very, it's something that's still very widely practiced among parents who still have a heavy hand in the relationship, uh, the relationships of their, of their children. Um, it's something that, you know, that, that does happen, right? Um, parents are involved in, in the relationships that, you know, that, that, that their daughters have. Um, and so it continues. So I think it's interesting. I will, you know, you talk about the parents being involved. I well, I, I was in Beijing in two thousand and one, and obviously it was very different then. How many years ago was that? Uh, Sixteen, seventeen years ago. <laughs> Probably two hundred in China years. <laughs> right, exactly. But one of the things, and uh, mainly spent time well in other cities and also in the country. But one thing you noticed in the cities, you would see these families, uh, whether you went to the zoo or a restaurant, or you went out in public places. You know, there was the one little the son. And then there was the grandparents and the parents and another set of grandparents mm-hmm. and this little prince, really, <laughs> um, and everyone catering to him. And, um, and you would see that all over. I don't know why I'm bringing that up, but um, that was, you know, that was something that was 
very obvious. And obviously, yes, you say it's 200 years, not just 17 years if you fast forward socially. Um, very, very different. Um, what about examples? Like, can you give examples? I mean, you have examples in your book, and I know that the outgrowth, this is what I found interesting of your book, or one of the things you became interested in, in um, you started uh, doing actually a, the uh, leftover monologues. I was curious about that because that was kind of an outgrowth of your book, um, like actually putting on presentations, into, like, like the vagina monologues, uh, monologues, I guess, right, of individual women and their stories. Yes, and actually it's funny that you ask. Uh, the book launched yesterday in the U.S., and we celebrated the launch by bringing the leftover monologues to the U.S. We performed them last night in New York to a crowd of about 100 people, which was awesome. Where? Um, I'm right in the middle of the city here. I, <laughs> if I had only known, yeah. Oh! <laughs> um, Where so, were we? Uh, it was... It was at the home of a friend who has a very, very, very large home and theater space, uh-huh. proper stage, sound system, lights, and everything um, that could accommodate that large of a crowd. So he was kind enough to give us that space, and it was a launch party, and it, was, um, it wasn't the full presentation of the leftover monologues. So as you said, the leftover monologues were a spin-off the vagina monologues, um, and the idea to perform this play, which we did um, six times in China to the extent that we were teasingly known as the leftover and over and over monologues. <laughs> we performed them so many times. Um, it, the idea came from from just this desire to. I had completed a rough manuscript of the book, and I was so inspired by the stories that I'd heard, and I was so they were so funny and they were so layered and they were so brave. The women that I was you know meeting, they were so resilient, and I thought you know I can write these down. Um, I can do my best to capture the nuance of them and the humor of them and, and the frantic mothers and, you know, the, the wacky calls over Chinese New Year and all the forced blind dates and, and all of this color that you get when you talk to these women. But it's just so much more vivid when you, when you hear it directly from the women themselves. It, it just felt like, it, for me, it was a very powerful experience. And I wanted to share with a live audience. I wanted to sort of put them in the shoes of the journalist and let them hear these stories as I had heard them. So I put out a casting call, and ultimately we had, um, I think it was 13 women and three men, uh, deliver monologues about being left over in China, but also about leftover topics. So things that in China should be discussed but don't get discussed because China is a pretty buttoned-up society and you don't really air dirty laundry. Um, and so that was the idea of the show. And we were only supposed to do it once to a small crowd at a sort of cafe theater space. But we packed it. And people enjoyed it so much that we did it again. And you know, we just kept getting invited to do it again. And we closed to a crowd of 600 people in Beijing. It was absolutely wild. And one of the coolest things that I got to do there because it really, I mean, when I started, people said, oh, you're not going to get Chinese women to do it. They're shy. And I said, some of them are, but some of them definitely are not. And, you know, if we could pull this off, it would be great. And it, end, it ended up just being something really special. And the, the women and men in the original cast said, bring us to New York. You know, they moved back. They all wanted to come. And being independent single women, many of them, they said, we'll pay for it. We'll get, our, we'll get ourselves there. You don't even need to fundraise, which I thought was very sweet of them. Um, and so I, I kind of had this promise that, you know, I would bring it to New York, but I got wrapped up in book things and I said, you know, when the book comes out, I'll do it. And so I'm so happy that we, you know, I delivered on that promise and we did three monologues last night and, and then celebrated the party of the launch. 
That, I mean, that's so exciting. And now I'm curious as to I'm interested in, so what's next here in the city? I mean, you, you launched it at your friend's house, obviously. But uh, now what? what? I mean, there are obviously a lot of theaters here. Where, where is it going to go from there, here? Well, I had this idea that we might internationalize it. Um, when I was thinking about possibly bringing it to the U.S., I thought, you know, so an argument that I, I hope comes across um, in a strong way in the book is that, you know, leftover is a Chinese term, but it's, it's a universal idea. Uh, Chinese women are not the only ones who have this, you know, who, who are subject to this sort of pathological scrutiny for not being married by a certain age. This is something that, that exists in varying cultures to varying degrees, of course, much more severe in certain places and, and almost not at all in others, but people are aware of this. It, it has to do with religion. It's, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. It exists. And I thought it would be really neat if we could sort of show, showcase women from different countries who face the exact same pressure, um, but, you know, from a completely different background. And I got the idea when I was going to see a one-woman show in London. Uh, it's called Dirty Paki Lingerie. And it's a one-woman show by a woman named Aziza Fatima. And she was doing a scene where she was playing an, an elderly Pakistani grandmother um, trying to get her granddaughter married off frantically and sort of in a very pushy way. And I thought, this is a Chinese grandmother. And, you know, some, some traditional Jewish families, you'll get the same thing, right? There's this, there's this idea that a woman is like a burning building unless she's married by a certain age. No one is going to want her, and that's a source of great distress, which means family members need to pull together and, and do everything possible to get her married off as quickly as possible. This is not just a Chinese concept. It's, it's fascinating to observe in China because of the, the gender imbalances that we talked about earlier and the cultural context of it, because marriage has just been such a cornerstone, as you said, of a Chinese woman's life, and what's happening right now is so new, right? Marriage was, was universal until pretty much the 90s in China. If you were going to work at a Danwei in your work unit and you didn't have a spouse, the leader of your work unit would say, okay, you marry this one, simply because there was no housing to accommodate unmarried people. So, I mean, these were very transactional, very mercenary marriages. And what you're seeing now is the rise of a more... Of a, a more independent class of women who can be discretionary in terms of who they partner with, and they can also choose not to partner at all. And that's something very new in China. And at the same time, you know, China's home to the largest population of women in the world. I love that superlative. And, and one of the things that fascinates me about China is that it, it is home to so many superlatives. Um, but it's also, it's a very diverse female population, right? It, China's home to the, the highest um, percentage of self-made female billionaires in the world per capita, but it's also a very poor country. So it's sort of the perfect diorama for understanding this demographic shift that happens, right? In China, you have women whose lives look like those of women in New York and in LA and in London. And you also have women whose lives look like those in sub-Saharan Africa or more rural parts of India, where, you know, being a woman is still, it's a, you're, you're, you're very much a second-class citizen. And so China just for me was, was the perfect lens for understanding a much broader global shift that I saw un, unfolding, you know, before my eyes. I, I grew up here. Um, I spent a lot of time in Europe. So I had that, that Western context, and I finished the book in Mozambique, which, you know, is the other end of the spectrum, right? Yep. It, it has one of the highest birth rates in the world. Women there are still having four, five, six children, which, of course, impacts their ability to become educated. It, it, it impacts their earning potential, and that's what, you know, women in China were 
a few generations ago. So China has just accelerated very quickly, um, and so this is all very, very new, but you can, you can see a lot of what else has happened in the world and what will happen in the world through China. And I also think if, again, if China plays its cards right, it has the potential to set the tone for a lot of women in, in these emerging economies, right? It, China if it plays its cards right, could, could be a model for it, right? We have, we have other models. Um, you know, there's Japan and there's South Korea. They've not done as well. They, they've educated their women, Singapore as well, but they haven't found ways, Japan especially, and, and South Korea notably as well, they haven't found ways to incorporate them in the formal economy like China has. That was a product of the Cultural Revolution where it was like, we need to build a nation and we need all hands on deck. We don't care if you're a man or you're a woman. Um, we're not doing this to empower you. We just need your help. And, and that just meant that women were involved, and they have been. And they've been an important part of that tremendous economic story that is modern China. And if China wants to keep up that economic growth, it needs to leverage this population of women. Otherwise, it'll become Japan. It will stagnate. I mean, Christine Lagarde says it all the time. Abe is starting to realize that one of the biggest sources of Japan's economic woes is the fact that half of its population is, you know, out of the workforce for 13 years as they're looking after a child. So there's a lot that, you know, there's a lot at stake. Um, but if China, you know, plays this well, I think it could portend good things. Uh, the marriage rates aren't going to, you know, not everyone's going to have a partner automatically. There's no easy right. fix to that. But from an economic perspective, the demographic outlook, I guess, isn't so cheery. But from an economic perspective, um, there's stuff to be done. Yeah. It's all about attitude change, isn't it? I mean, it must be. Yes. Uh, and that's difficult to do. Look, he, I mean, I always marvel at the fact that, you know, my grandmother was, couldn't vote until she was 35 years old. In the United States, mm-hmm. you talk, you know, so right. you're talking about, yeah. Um, and then the 60s happened and all that kind of stuff. So all of this stuff is really recent, even in Western countries like the United States and, and even in Europe. Yeah. And we only have a couple minutes left, and I probably shouldn't ask this question, but, I mean, are you in, you're in Cuba now. I split my time between New York and, and Cuba. Yes, I cover Cuba for The Economist. It's a little bit hard to get things done all the time there for some connectivity issues, so I'm between the two places. So can we talk about Cuba just briefly? We, we literally do have sure. three minutes left. but so um, And I was there also to, 10 years ago, let's say, so that's changed too. But So talk to us about Cuba in the context of what we've been talking about, and women and leftovers and... Well, 10 Cuban years don't feel like 10 Chinese years, that's for sure. (laughs) Things there don't change nearly as quickly, unfortunately. And one of the things that originally drew me to Cuba was that, you know, I started, I had my eye on it uh, as early as 2015, and I thought, you know, we've just established, reestablished diplomatic relations, and and all these companies are sort of eyeing their entry into Cuba. Could this be 1979 China? You know, could this be the moment where this planned socialist economy starts changing? And, and, you know, things really start to accelerate, and no, it didn't happen. Cuba's, Cuba's opening up is going to be a lot slower, and that is completely by design. Um, from a leftover perspective, Cuba and China are complete opposites. I mean, first of all, there's not the gender imbalance that you see um, in China. And, you know, Cubans don't have a lot of things as far as resources go, but there is a whole lot of love in that country. I mean, humanity has been preserved in a way 
maybe because people are not connected to the Internet nonstop and they have to talk to one another and they're not always glued to phones. I mean, that is changing because connectivity is improving and, and people are obviously keen to communicate with the rest of the world. But, um, you know, China is not a place where you see too much, too many public displays of affection. It's just culturally, it's just not what happens. And Cuba is the exact opposite. People are warm and friendly and open and, and the malecon, that, that iconic seaside promenade that I'm sure you've, you've you know, driven past in, in a nice convertible car, that's the world's largest outdoor theater where it's just, you know, examples of, of you know, people canoodling all over the place. So it's, it's very different from that perspective. Um, it's also a country that, you know, gender equality is, is important there. And I think despite being, you know, a Caribbean country where catcalling happens a lot, I mean, it, it can be a sexist society, there are a fair amount of, of women in power. I mean, they're obviously not at the top, but you have female ministers, and, and there, is, there is a presence there. Um, and, and there are, you know, huge campaigns against domestic violence, and, and there is a value. I mean, people, you know, men there value women. It's, it's, they yeah. also so it's a very, very different the, cultural situation. I mean, it's a very different yeah. We only we literally have 30 sec- seconds left, and I could go on talking to you and love to have you back on the show again, But I because I want to mention the book again, obviously, uh, Leftover in China, The Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower, Roseanne Lake. Roseanne, tell us where we can get more, you know, the website and where we can go to uh, get more information about the book and about you. It's available wherever books are sold, Amazon, okay. Barnes & Noble, all the big sellers, and my website is roseannelake.com, and, and all of the fun stuff that I do is, is up there. Yeah, and you do a lot of fun and great stuff, and I'm going to be looking for those uh, monologues <laughs> right here in New York great. City. Great. <laughs> Coming to uh, yeah. theater near you. Yeah, invite <laughs> me when, when, it, when, it, uh, when you put them on. But anyway, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.